When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We were a generation that sort of became aware of itself partly through the joy of rock and roll music. From the very beginning, we had a sense, even if we didn't know the cliche, that it was a soundtrack for our lives. We were listening to the lyrics as well as the backbeat of some of those songs. We're straying from our usual focus on rock novels to talk about your nonfiction book, A Hard Rain, America in the 1960s. So I want to talk with you about how music influenced or inspired or just converged with major events and art from that decade. I tried to write the book in, in as many of the dimensions that we all lived through as I could. So, of course, there's stuff about civil rights protests and anti-war protests and the war in Vietnam and politics and elections and literature. But music is something that you just come back to again and again. This is Janet Fitch. This is Jeff Jackson. This is Dana Spiota. This is Chris L. Terry. This is Michael Amos Cody. This is Lance Olson. This is Jessamine Violet. This is Zachary Lazar, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. is lit season three hey there lit listeners welcome to another episode of rock is lit the first and still only podcast devoted to rock novels and also a finalist in the 2023 popcon indie podcast contest in the category of art and culture. Rock is Lit is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. Rock is Lit is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page. Find me on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website at ChristyAlexanderHallberg.com. Drop me a line at christyalexanderhallberg at gmail.com to let me know what rock novels you'd like to hear featured on the show. And for goodness sakes, subscribe, comment, leave a five-star rating and all that good stuff on your podcast platform of choice. Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I thank you for your support.
Today, we're stepping outside the realm of fiction as we embark on a fascinating journey into the 1960s with a book that captures the heartbeat of an era, an era that has inspired so many of the rock novels featured on the podcast. Acclaimed author Fry Gailyard is here to discuss his nonfiction work, A Hard Rain, America in the 1960s, a book that takes us on a deeply personal exploration of a pivotal time in American history. Fry Gailyard's byline has appeared in The Guardian, The Bitter Southerner, The Oxford American, The Washington Post, and The Journal of American History. Former writer-in-residence at the University of South Alabama, Fry is the author of more than 30 books. His award-winning titles include Watermelon Wine, The Spirit of Country Music, The Southernization of America, A Story of Democracy and the Balance, With Music and Justice for All, and A Hard Rain, America in the 1960s. In that extraordinary work, Fry not only delves into the tragic and hopeful narratives of civil rights, black power, women's liberation, and the Vietnam War, but also unveils the cultural manifestations of change. From the Brothers Kennedy to Janis Joplin, Johnny Cash to Bob Dylan and everything in between, A Hard Rain introduces us to the influential figures who shaped this iconic American decade. So buckle up for a ride through the pages of history as we discuss the music, cultural events, and the people who defined the 1960s. Thanks for joining me, Fry. Thank you, Christy. Always good to see you. Absolutely. I should note that you were a guest on the podcast in Season 1, Episode 14, the episode that features Michael Amos Cody and his novel, Gabriel's Songbook, about a starry-eyed singer-songwriter who was on a quest to strike it big in Nashville in the 1980s. You and Peter Cooper, who was the Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum Senior Director, came on in the last segment of that episode to talk about the real Nashville music scene at that time. Now, I love Michael's novel, and I love that episode, but I, I'm sure you can understand when I listen to it now, I can't help but think of Peter because he passed away a few days before it premiered, which was incredibly sad. It was sad, and it was just unbelievable. I mean, he was one of my favorite people, you know, in the world. And he was only 52 or something like that. I don't remember, but I mean, in his early 50s, and I'd known him since he was a kid in college. So, yeah, very, very sad. But it was a, it was a, a great conversation about a wonderful novel, which I would not have been aware of except for your podcast. And I got a chance to read it and loved it. I wound up putting out a separate bonus episode that includes my full interview with you and Peter that folks can find on my YouTube channel as well as my website and pretty much all the podcast platforms. But I will put links to both episode 14 and the bonus episode in the show notes. Great. As I mentioned in the opening, we're straying from our usual focus on rock novels to talk about your nonfiction book, A Hard Rain, America in the 1960s. Largely because, as you indicated in a message to me a few weeks ago, quote, from the moment the 1960s began, music was a defining thread in the story, the lifeblood of identity for a whole generation. 
So I want to talk with you about how music influenced or inspired or just converged with major events and art from that decade. But first, tell me a little bit about your background. Because you were a kid growing up in the South in the 1960s. Yeah, that was the coming of age decade for me. I was living in Alabama when the decade started in Mobile, down on the Gulf Coast. And I was in junior high school, uh, which is what we called it then, when the 1960s began. And when the decade ended, I had just graduated from college and was beginning my career as a writer. And I think the reason that I chose that profession, that occupation, vocation, whatever you want to call it was because of the events in the in the 60s they were so life-changing for me you know there was so much hope during that time when the decade began there was so much uh, such a strong sense of possibility that a great country would become even greater it, it would become more inclusive more fair more just all of those things and from the very beginning, music was a part of that unfolding story. So I tried to write the book in, in as many of the dimensions that we all live through as I could. So, of course, there's stuff about civil rights protests and anti-war protests and the war in Vietnam and politics and elections and literature. But music is uh, is something that you just come back to again and again. I was thumbing through the pages um, as I was getting ready to talk to you, and I realized that the first time the subject of music comes up is on page 10 of the book. It's a section about a march in Nashville by sit-in students who were taking their seats at lunch counters and insisting that they had a right to be served. And it was a form of protest that was not just about a hamburger. It was about human dignity and possibility. And at one of their marches, a young white folk singer, originally from California, but then living in Tennessee, named Guy Carawan, sang an old Negro hymn that was originally called I Shall Overcome. And Guy and Pete Seeger had changed the pronoun from I to we, and it sort of tweaked the lyrics a little bit to make it what became the definitive civil rights anthem of the decade. So from the very start of the decade, with these young people making this amazing leap of faith that love and inclusiveness and the respect for the dignity of all people, that those kind of ideals were stronger than the hate and the backlash that were being raised against them. I mean, think about how remarkable that is. And music became something that sort of buoyed that confidence, that sort of sustained it from the very beginning. We shall Where 
were you of race relations of the civil rights movement as this young guy in the very early 60s, this white guy growing up, white kid growing up in Mobile, Alabama? How aware were you of of what was going on in terms of protest and all of that sort of thing? You know, I was uh, I was kind of aware of it because it was in the news so much. Right. You know, it was on the TV and you read about it in newspapers and all of that. But I was not raised to be sympathetic to it. I was part of a Southern white Southern family that was very much part of the status quo. And the interesting thing for me was, and I think this was true of some of my other friends who eventually became, like I did, deeply sympathetic to the civil rights movement and its goals. But I think music, in some ways, was our point of entry because it was easier somehow, you know? When you heard in, let's say, 1962, Peter, Paul, and Mary singing, you know, about what they would do if they had a hammer and how they would sing about justice. And somehow singing about justice seemed uh, easier than marching in the streets for justice, which maybe we weren't quite ready to do. And yet the emotion kind of entered our consciences through music. And then there was another dimension of this, too, that was maybe a little bit more subconscious. But in 1960, two of the biggest hits that year were from Elvis Presley, It's Now or Never, was his biggest hit ever, and it came out in 1960. That same year, Sam Cooke had a top five, maybe I think second, top two national hit with Chain Gang. Now, what was interesting about that, even if we didn't have words for it, these two guys both were born in Mississippi at around the same time. They were born maybe 100 miles apart, one white, one black, and each loved the music of the other's culture. There were stories about Sam Cooke on package shows with the Everly Brothers singing Hank Williams songs in the back of the bus on the Everly Brothers guitar. Wow. You know, that sense of music crossing just very easily those kind of cultural barriers that existed in other realms of life. And Elvis loved black music. His first recording was a Delta Blues song, That's All Right, Mama. And on the other side of the record, the flip side was a bluegrass song, Blue Moon of Kentucky. And so there was this almost conscious awareness among the performers that music crossed all the old barriers. Some of us who were merely listening may not have been quite conscious of what we were hearing, and yet we heard it. There we were listening to Sam Cooke sing about a chain gang, about people who were, you know, imprisoned and sentenced to hard labor, who were obviously black in the song. And we were made to care about them by this song that we listened to all the time on the radio. So again, music became something that not only was a source of escape and enjoyment and fun, but was also something that kind of worked on us. That's the sound of the men working on the chain gang. That's the sound of the men working on the chain gang. All day long they're saying, Ooh. Ah. Ooh. Ah. 
is Fry Gilliard, and you are listening to Rock is Lit. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. The Sam Cooke and Elvis bits in the book happen in part one. The book is divided into three parts. We're going to talk more about part one in just a second, but I want to hear about a couple of events that are monumental events, cultural events that you actually were witness to and that played a part in the inspiration for writing this book. Mm -hmm. And the first one has to do with Martin Luther King in Birmingham. Sure. Um, in 1963, I was on a high school field trip from Mobile to Birmingham, and I don't even remember for sure what the purpose of the trip was, but a, a group of us went up there, and we happened to be there on Good Friday of 1963, an April day, and we came out of the hotel where we were staying, and we found ourselves, uh, I found myself, just walking right up upon Martin Luther King being arrested by the Birmingham police during a march in Montgomery during the demonstrations there. And it was startling. It was a little bit frightening because there were these two Birmingham policemen, white guys, shoving Dr. King up the sidewalk roughly toward a paddy wagon. And they passed within, I don't know, three or four feet I want to say something like that from where I was standing and through no planning or, you know, intentionality of my own, I found myself looking into the face of Martin Luther King as he was being arrested. And what I saw in that face, I thought, I mean, who knows what he was really thinking, but what I thought I saw was this deep sadness in his large dark, expressive eyes. And it was just like I was 15 years old or, or whatever, and it just, my mind took a, an indelible snapshot of that moment. And all of a sudden, all of this stuff that you'd been reading about in the newspapers, for me, it suddenly had a face, and it was the face of Martin Luther King. 
Yeah. About that same time, Joan Baez came to Birmingham to lend her voice to the Birmingham movement. And she did a live recording at Miles College, a historically black college in Birmingham. And one of the songs that she recorded there was We Shall Overcome. And that version of We Shall Overcome was the one that she released on an album that came out that same year. And then a few months after, you know, all of that in Birmingham, after I'd seen Dr. King, there was Joan Baez with Dr. King at the March on Washington, where he delivered his I Have a Dream speech, and she sang We Shall Overcome. So again, music was never far away from these events that were both a source of discomfort and a source of inspiration the more we lived with them. Right. And this next one would have happened a bit later. It also served as inspiration for this book, and it has to do with Robert Kennedy. Right. He was running for president. You were a student at Vanderbilt University, and you had an interaction with him. Right. I was part of the student group that had invited Robert Kennedy to Vanderbilt to make a talk. And this was 1968. He had declared his candidacy for president, and he spoke to an audience at Vanderbilt of 11,000 people. And I was his, I guess you would say I was his student host. And so I went to the airport with the group of people that were going to welcome him to Nashville. And the crowd at the airport was almost overwhelming in its intensity. Mm. The kind of impact that Robert Kennedy had in 1968, that sort of urgent hope that he engendered, is really hard to describe if you didn't live through it. But, you know, it took Kennedy maybe 30 minutes to walk from the plane to the car that was waiting for him in what was then a fairly small airport because it was packed literally wall to wall, literally wall to wall with people. And it was like he could barely take a step at a time through this, you know, it was a friendly group, but just the sheer intensity of it made it feel a little bit like a mob, even though people were cheering and they were happy, deliriously happy. It was was also kind of unsettling. And Kennedy made a little talk to the crowd. And then we got to the car and John Siegenthaler, who was the editor of the Nashville, Tennessean newspaper, who was a close friend of Kennedy's and who was supposed to ride in the car with him in the back seat, gave his seat to me. And so I found myself in the back seat of the car with Robert Kennedy and his good friend, John Glenn, the astronaut who uh, was traveling with him to offer his support and to say a little something at each stop along the way. And so there we were in the back seat of the car. And as we were driving toward the campus, there were Tennessee politicians in the front seat who were a little bit more cynical than the wide-eyed, idealistic 21-year-old student in the backseat with Kennedy. <laughs> and, and one of them told Kennedy that he shouldn't be talking about race and poverty because it was the South, and the South didn't want to hear that. Talk about the war if you want, because it's a campus, but don't be talking about that race and poverty stuff. Only he didn't say stuff. So 
Kennedy kind of smiled, this little wry smile, and he looked at me and he said, do you agree with what he just said? And I didn't really care what the Tennessee politician had to say and or what he thought of my response. And so I said, no, I don't agree with what he had to say. Mm. It is the South, and therefore the message that you deliver is all the more important. Mm-hmm. But I also said, I think that the media that's covering you at Vanderbilt be the same media that's covered you elsewhere. And I'm pretty sure they'll notice if you change your message or something like that. Good for you. And Kennedy kind of smiled again and looked back at the guy in the front seat and nodded toward me and said, I agree with him. So I can tell my grandkids that, you know, I was an advisor to Robert Kennedy during his, you know, (laughs) during his campaign. (laughs) There's a music story associated with that, too. We realized that Kennedy was going to be late, which often happened because of the size of the crowds that he encountered at stops along the way. And so I had called a Grand Ole Opry singer named George Hamilton IV, who had a big hit called Abilene a few years earlier. And George, I'd been told, was kind of a liberal guy. So we had reserved tickets for George and his wife to see Robert Kennedy because he very much wanted to. So I called George and asked him if he would mind bringing his guitar and entertaining the crowd a little bit while Kennedy was going to be late. And George, at first, what I didn't know about him was that he was one of the most modest, humble, down-to-earth people in the world. So he said, well, you know, gosh, that's mighty kind of you, but um, I, you know, I'm just a hillbilly singer, and I, I don't believe I'd be adequate to do that. And so I tried to flatter him and said, somehow I knew this, I said, Mr. Hamilton, you know, you and Johnny Cash and Earl Scruggs are the only three people that I know of, three performers who've played both the Opry and the Newport Folk Festival. So, you know, don't sell yourself short. And he said, oh, well, that's mighty kind of you. Anyway, I was running out of time to persuade him by flattering him. And so I said, well, Mr. Hamilton, if it makes you feel any better, you're all we've got. (laughs) And that worked. He said, oh, well, okay, then I'll come. And so he did, and he thought he was going to play for 30 minutes, maybe 45. It turned out that George Hamilton IV played for two hours. Oh, my goodness. Just keeping the crowd from getting too restless. And we sent him a check later for $500 as a little token of thanks, and he sent it back. And he said playing for Robert Kennedy was the biggest honor of his professional life. And so I didn't expect that from a Grand Ole Opry singer in those days, but there it was. Abilene, Abilene, prettiest town I've ever seen. Women there don't treat you mean in Abilene, my Abilene. I sit alone. So getting to the book, it clocks in at over 600 pages, spanning major cultural events from the 60s, intersecting those events with your own personal reflections of many of them, because you were there, you were a part of some of these things. 
And that's no small undertaking. Can you share your insight into your research process for this book? This was a big project. It really was a big project. And there were times that I thought, what was I thinking? You know, I mean, it was so, (laughs) it seemed so massive, you know, because the subject sort of sprawled through all these dimensions politics and protests and the women's movement and the, uh, the environmental movement and different events in the labor movement, you know, all of these kind of things that were taking place. And so how do you get your arms around all of that? Some of it I remembered because I'd seen it or seen it on TV. There was a lot of reading involved. There was some interviewing involved. But then I still had to figure out, well, how do I structure it all? And the breakthrough there that actually enabled me to write the book was something so obvious that I couldn't believe I had not seen it from the start. And that was just do it chronologically, 1960, 1961, 1962. And so that's how the book is structured year by year by year. And there are several chapters for each year. And what that does is it enables you to go from maybe a chapter about the Berlin crisis in 1961 to the next chapter, which is about Roger Maris trying to break Babe Ruth's home run record. There wouldn't be any sort of logical reason to go from one subject to another, but that's what happened chronologically. And so that became sort of, and that's how you experience the decade too. You know, we all live through things in sequence. And so realizing that meant that you could kind of meander through the different kinds of subject matter in the way that we all who were alive then meandered through those years. And then I was kind of able to write the book. And what I wanted to make it was a story. I wanted to to not write just a dry history of what happened. I wanted to leave people with a sense of how it felt to be alive there. You know, there are younger historians that will analyze the decade, and I did some of that, but I just wanted to tell the story of it, both the big story of the competing arcs of hope and possibility on the one hand and cynicism and war and despair and division on the other, all of those threads that are continue to be part of life in this country. But then there are also all the little stories that make up the big stories. The story of the Beatles coming to the United States actually only a couple of months after John Kennedy was assassinated and, you know, bringing sort of a sense of joy to a grieving country. And even if we didn't, if we didn't all juxtapose that in our minds, we felt it somewhere inside ourselves. But Paul McCartney, who is one of maybe the most reflective of the Beatles, I mean, they were all really smart guys, but McCartney talked about it. You know, he talked about the sadness that they, as young people, felt about the uh, loss of this great charismatic American president, this inspirational figure. So again, music just is naturally a part of the whole panorama as it unfolded. Let's talk about the title of the book. A Hard Rain, of course, evokes the Bob Dylan song, A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, from the 63 album, The Free Will and Bob Dylan, which I have. So how did you approach the process of choosing a title? Because there are a gazillion songs that might have fit. Right. Did you have some alternative titles that you considered before this one? 
I had a lot of alternative I titles I, I, I had considered. I, I knew what the subtitle was, America in the 1960s, Our Decade of Hope, Possibility, and Innocence Lost. I knew that was my subtitle. But I kept trying to find a title that would really just nail it. I think I'll spare the audience some of the lame possibilities that I came up with. I don't know. I'm kind of curious. Some of them were other song titles. But then one day I was listening to some folk music channel or some, you know, rock music. I don't even remember which one, but this Dylan song came on and it was like epiphanal. I just thought, oh, that's got to be it. Mm -hmm. Partly because, you know, the song is so good, but partly because it was such an impressionistic, poetic way to approach the whole decade as it was unfolding. And this was only 1963. It was only starting to unfold. Yeah. I mean, I think I had thought of the other Dylan songs like The Times They Are Changing or whatever as a possible, but somehow that was a little flatter or too obvious or whatever. But A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, again, it was such an artful song. You know, mm -hmm. it was almost like an impressionistic painting in music. And Somehow that just seemed to be perfect. Yeah. And I also thought, you know, if I can help make Bob Dylan famous, I mean, hey, you know. <laughs> yeah, because he needs help. Yeah, right. He needed it bad. So has he sent you a thank you note, though? Just astonishingly, I've not heard from Dylan about this. So, well, damn. Some people ask if, you know, how I felt about stealing his title. And, oh, uh, no. You know, I guess that's a fair question, but I tried to say that. I hoped I wasn't stealing. I was more paying homage. Exactly. And you can't copyright song titles, so you're in the clear. You can't. You can't. So I, that's right. In the middle of seven side forest. I've been out in front of a dozen dead oceans. I've been 10,000 miles in the mouth of a graveyard. And it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard rain gonna fall. So the book is divided into three parts. Part one is entitled Possibilities and covers 1960 to 63. Part two is entitled Inspiration slash Loss and covers 64 to 68. And part three is entitled The Unfinished Story and covers 1969. Let's talk about part one. We've already touched on Elvis and Sam Cooke and some other folks, Joan Baez. Why did you call that section possibilities? It seemed to me that up until November of 1963, when John Kennedy was killed, I thought the country was caught in a sense of possibility that was um, sort of stirred on a number of different fronts. One of them was the civil rights movement, the I Have a Dream speech by Dr. King, all of those things. Another was the Kennedy presidency. Here was this extraordinarily charismatic figure who, whatever his feet of clay that we've learned more about in later years, he had the amazing gift of stirring people's hope. And there was substance behind it, too. His handling of the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 was just an amazing piece of 
statesmanship and personal strength. Part of it, the strength was in resisting the advice of his generals who thought we ought to bomb Cuba in order to get, you know, Russian missiles out of Cuba. And Kennedy was reluctant to do that because we didn't know if the missiles were operative or not. And it turned out some of them were. And so there might have been a nuclear exchange if he had followed his general's advice. And he had the strength of character and commitment and the confidence not to do that. So he was a figure who stirred us in a lot of ways. And when he was killed in November of 1963, somehow the country was just not the same anymore. If you were alive, then you just couldn't believe it. And so we entered into a new phase of some sense of lost innocence for what America was really about at its heart. And then soon after that, the war in Vietnam gained momentum, and then there were all the divisions surrounding that. And so we entered into a more difficult time. In 1963, the music reflected that sense of possibility with some of the folk music songs and uh, there were some good old rock and roll songs that were rising up the charts at that time. And Patsy Cline was taking the country music world by, by storm. Yes. The biggest woman star in the history of country music, you could argue. And as my friend George Hamilton IV, who was Patsy Cline's friend, said, she didn't just open doors for women. She kicked them in. You know, absolutely. And then she was killed in a plane crash in in 1963. So again, music was part of the hope, and and in 1963, part of the sadness. Were there any songs when you began working on this section that even before you started researching, even before you started outlining, were there songs and artists that immediately came to mind that mean a lot to you, that you knew that you were going to put in that section? Well, I knew I was going to write about the folk protest singers who were deliberately trying to influence events and, and sort of the mindset of the, of the time. People like Joan Baez and Peter, Paul and Mary and Bob Dylan and Pete Seeger and Odetta and just on and on. We were young. and so. You know, there was something about rock and roll music that was for us, right? And so yes. when Roy Orbison sang Only the Lonely, us teenagers knew kind of what it felt. I thought it was great later on when Bruce Springsteen in one of his songs talked about Roy Orbison singing for the lonely. You know, I mean, that was mm -hmm. a little lyrical little nod. nod. Yeah. Only the lonely. generation that sort of became aware of itself partly through the joy of rock and roll music. From the very beginning, we had a sense, even if we didn't know the cliche, that it was a soundtrack for our lives. We were listening to the lyrics as well as the backbeat of some of those songs. So I knew I wanted to include that also. 
And then sort of as I doubled back on it, I realized there was stuff beginning to take shape in other realms too, you know, in rhythm and blues mm -hmm. and uh, the muscle shoal sounds in Alabama really got going in 1962 with a black singer named Arthur Alexander who uh, recorded a song there called You Better Move On that was later covered by the Rolling Stones. Here was Alexander, who had been a bellhop in a hotel, writing these songs that were later recorded by the Beatles and Rolling Stones and Bob Dylan. And he didn't even write them with a musical instrument. He didn't play any musical instruments. He just sang. Really? Yeah. And so he just wrote these songs. He wrote, uh, co-wrote, you know, a song for Sam Cooke back in those days. But the great thing was, in Mun Muscle Shoals, Alabama, he was, you know, the musicians backing him were white guys who loved black music. And so it was always this interracial collaboration, and they knew it. You know, those guys making the music knew that they were crossing those barriers that were taboo in other realms of life, and they took pride in it. Percy Sledge recorded When a Man Loves a Woman there, I think in 1966, I believe it was. And, you know, he talked about that. We were like brothers. We were as one, he said. Part two covers 1964 to 1968 and is called Inspiration slash Loss, which is the perfect description for that period. Right. We have the Vietnam War raging. The counterculture movement was burgeoning. Social and civil rights movements were gaining steam. How did the music of the mid-1960s reflect or respond to the social and cultural changes taking place during this period? Well, I alluded to the Beatles and the British invasion that followed so closely on the heels of the Kennedy assassination and the sort of joyfulness of that. And at the same time, Motown was really breaking big. And again, it was sort of joyful music. My Girl and... Uh, Baby, I Need Your Lovin' by the Four Tops, and pretty soon the Supremes, and Martha and the Vandellas, uh, you know, dancing yeah. in the street. I mean, all of that. And so part of it was a kind of escape from the hard stuff that was going on. But then there were songs that, you know, even on the pop charts were addressing the hard stuff directly. Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come. Amazing song. An amazing song. And he wrote it, in, or it came out in 1964, and was one of the songs that the Freedom Summer students listened to in Mississippi uh, after the three civil rights workers were murdered and their bodies were buried in a dam. They would listen to Sam Cooke late at night in these little cabins where they were seeking shelter from the meanness of white Mississippi and were kind of sustained by this. Oh, and just like Even in the realm of, uh, of country music, Johnny Cash in 1964 did a whole album of American Indian protest songs. And one of them, the Ballad of Ira Hayes, made it to number two on the country music charts. 
Now, in today's country music, there would never be a song that topical, that decent, that made it that high on the charts. But that was Johnny Cash. And so we were kind of caught up with him in those times. And uh, then in 1965, The Birds recorded and released Turn, Turn, Turn by Pete Seeger. And Seeger, who was always this sort of wry and amiable kind of guy, said with tongue in cheek, he said he was really proud of this song because, after all, he had written seven of the words. <laughs> it's it, in the Bible. The rest, the rest <laughs> of it was a paraphrase of Ecclesiastes. Yeah, yeah. Among the seven words that Seeger added were these words, I swear it's not too late. And it made it a deliberate peace anthem. Whereas in Ecclesiastes, it was just a reflection on how things come and go in the world and nothing is permanent. And there's a season for one thing, there's a season for another. But Pete Seeger took that and added the affirmation that we can pursue the good stuff intentionally. And then the birds, sweet, lovely harmonies made all of that so accessible enabled us to think about it so easily. So that kind of thing was happening during that period of time. Later, uh, we had great women singers who emerged in 1967. Janis Joplin, a white girl from Texas singing the blues, covering a song that Aretha Franklin's sister, Irma Franklin, had done, Take a Piece of My Heart which had been a Grammy-winning song for Irma Franklin and Mm. became something totally different and all its own when Janis Joplin sang it. And you could just hear that anguish just sort of wrenching out of her like it was tearing her heart and her throat out all at the same time. And that same year, a little further down the coast from San Francisco, where Joplin was, there was Linda Ronstadt with that beautiful voice. Only Elvis Presley probably could sing as many different kinds of music credibly and well and with heartfelt talent as Ronstadt could. I mean, she was just amazing. We met her when she was, what, 21 years old, I guess, in 1967 and the Stone Ponies. You know, and it was a song written for a man singer, uh, written by Michael Nesmith. Mike Nesmith, right. Who was telling a woman, you know, in the song not to get too stuck on him because, you know, he was moving to a different drum. And Ronstadt turned it around and made it kind of a feminist anthem with a touch of vulnerability to it. Yep. I mean, it was just beautiful stuff. And speaking of Johnny Cash being cutting edge, he was recording Dylan at that time, too, during that period. He he was. And it turned out they were really close friends. Mm -hmm. I did an interview with Johnny Cash in the 1970s for a book, a book on country music called Watermelon Wine that I wrote. And we did the interview in his office at the House of Cash outside of Nashville. And there was a framed Bob Dylan album cover 
that was hanging on the wall. And the inscription on the album cover said, to John and June, love Bob Dylan. Wow. And it was just so, you know, striking. And I asked him about it. And he said, oh, yeah, we were friends ever since 1962 or 63. I heard whenever he said whenever his first album came out and I heard it. And he said, I I wrote him a fan letter. He said, I I told Mm. him that he was just about the best country singer I'd ever heard. (laughs) And he said, Dylan wrote back kind of flabbergasted and said, I've been a fan of yours ever since I heard you in Minnesota in 1958. And so not too long after that, Dylan started recording in Nashville. He wrote the song, Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, during a Nashville recording session. All the musicians were getting paid, and they just sat there while Dylan wrote this song, and then finally they recorded it. The musicians that I talked to who worked with Dylan, they just loved his artistry. They thought he was a really decent, respectful, collegial guy. They just loved working with him. And talk about a monumental event, Monterey Pop Festival, which you mentioned earlier. And that's where most people first heard Janis Joplin. Right. It's where a lot of Americans first heard Jimi Hendrix as well. That's right. It was just this huge event in terms of popular music. What other cultural implications do you think that festival had? Well, you know, it was a time of people coming together. Yeah. That would become a pattern, I think, Woodstock being in some ways the culmination of it, but people coming together in just this uninhibited love of the music that they were hearing. And that kind of bond between musicians and the audiences. I mean, these were some very intense crowds in those days. They were really, really into this stuff. And there was maybe some escapism involved because the world was becoming a little darker. You know, the war in Vietnam Mm and We'd already had the Kennedy assassination. Malcolm X had already been assassinated. There were riots in big cities in the ghetto areas in the summer. And, you know, and then by 1968, I mean, that was after the Monterey Pop Festival, but you had the two just devastating assassinations in 1968. Right. And so there was a little bit more of the hedonism element that was infusing the culture, and music was part of that. Drugs became involved in it, too, and sometimes music and drugs went together. But there was also this just astonishing level of talent there on those stages. These performers who were just iconic, yeah. whether it was the Grateful Dead or Joplin or Ronstadt or whoever it might have been, Creedence Clearwater Revival. By 1969, Bad Moon Rising was one of the favorite songs of the troops in Vietnam. I mean, it was, uh, you know, this Mm -hmm. uh, this was powerful stuff. Let's not forget the Doors and some of the psychedelic bands like the Grateful Dead. Absolutely. 
I've got this list of artists for each of the three sections of the book, and the longest list is in section two. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think that also, and I'd be interested to hear what you think about this, the undercurrent of anger in the culture seemed to be getting hotter and hotter. Right. And of course, we had more riots during that time. Right. But the music, I think, reflected that growing anger. Yeah, I think so. I mean, sometimes very overtly, you know, a song like Nina Simone, the North Carolinian. Mississippi goddamn. Doesn't get any angrier than that. And it was so angry that it was banned in a lot of places, not just the South. Did she get that played on the radio anywhere? You know, I'm not familiar with it if she did. Now, maybe in later years, but she performed it in concert and dared anybody to stop her. And I don't know about other people, but I wouldn't get up on stage and try and stop no, her from no, doing anything. No, no, absolutely not. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. Everybody knows about Mississippi. God damn! Alabama's got me so upset. Lurleen Wallace has made me lose my rest. Everybody knows about So who else do you have on your list that from the book that interested you in that in that period? Anybody that we've skipped? I mean, there were so many people. We haven't talked about Joni Mitchell, and she's a, a favorite of mine. You mentioned the song Urge for Going, which is, is really early right. Joni Mitchell. And I've always loved that song. And then, of course, she wrote Both Sides Now, which Judy Collins right. had a hit with. That We haven't really talked about the Beach Boys. Barry McGuire and Eve of Destruction. We can go on. Yeah, and absolutely. On. Joni Mitchell, we learned about as a songwriter before we learned about her as a performer, yeah. many of us. Judy Collins in 1968, with both sides now, I think really put her on the map. But it was interesting that a country singer, George Hamilton IV, had the first hit record with a, uh, with a Joni Mitchell song, first chart record, which was Urge for Going. Wow. Tom Rush had already recorded it, but Hamilton's version made the top 10 on the country charts. He was just blown away by the lyricism of it, you know, the imagery of mm-hmm. that Mitchell was able to evoke, you know, but of course, nobody could sing her songs like she could. And so once we started listening to her do it herself, then she became, again, one of the icons of those times, but here she still is. Yes. I mean, still filling the audiences with awe at her just incredible gifts as a singer, songwriter, all of it. Yeah. Oh, and somebody else just popped into mind, Dion, with Abraham, Martin, and John, a song that makes me cry every time I hear it. It's just such a powerful song. It is. And the guy who wrote that song was from my hometown of Mobile, Alabama. A guy whose name was Mm. was Dick Holler, and Dick's only other hit that he had written was Snoopy versus the Red Baron, (laughs) and which is which is a big gap gap, there between those two. But but he was heartbroken when Robert Kennedy was killed, and he just sat down, and that song came to him, and then Dion DeMucci, who had been such a great rock and roll singer in the early 60s with songs like Run Around Sue and The Wanderer and, you know, all of those doo-wop sort of northern white boy harmony songs. 
Dion apparently had fallen on hard times and was trying to rehabilitate himself from a drug problem. And he came upon this song and decided to record it. And his version of it is just so haunting. It is. And other people have covered it and have done nice jobs with it. And it's got fine lyrics, but it makes me cry also Mm -hmm. because of, you know, it's just so simple in its structure. And yet it just goes straight to your heart. Anybody here see my old friend Abraham? Can you tell me where he's gone? He freed a lot of people, but it seemed the good they die young. You know, I just looked around and he's And, you know, and about the same time, I mean, sort of the oddities of all this, you know, but Elvis had a big hit within the ghetto and, you know, not a song that people were expecting from Elvis, I don't think. Mm -hmm. And it was written by a white country singer, Mac Davis, but it was a song of empathy set in the ghettos of Chicago. And um, it was, I thought, consistent, really, with the love of black music that Elvis always felt that he would also try to make this imaginative leap through song about what it was like to live in deprivation in one of the big cities of uh, of the northern part of the United States. You can always nitpick a song, I suppose, but I thought he was really trying to do something there. And then he recorded If I Can Dream. That's right. And I can't remember the year that came out, but that was such a pivotal point for his 68 comeback special. Yes, it was. That was such an iconic special, too. You know, there he was in that black leather jacket singing in the round Mm -hmm. to this live audience. And they edited the special when it came on TV. But if you ever have a chance to see the raw and unedited version of it, you get a sense of Elvis spontaneously and the kind of joyful intensity that he brought to the whole thing of music. He would just go off on these ad lib riffs and stuff like that. So it was Elvis coming back on his own terms Mm -hmm. from being overshadowed by the Beatles and a lot of the other people we were talking about. I have seen that. That unedited version of him in the round came out years ago, and I remember watching that, and it was fascinating to see the interplay between him and the band and the audience. And Right. And, of course, there's the black leather suit. That doesn't yeah. hurt. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, particularly, <laughs> I, would, I, I think women really like the black leather suit. I can speak for the women. Yes, we do. <laughs> okay, you can speak for all women there. Good. Yes. Every single one of them. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'm trying to think if there's anything else there from that second part of the book. It was just so multifaceted, the kind of music that was coming out and all that was going on in the world. Dylan goes electric at Newport Folk Festival in 65. And what a brouhaha that was when that happened. Right. I mean, he uh, he was determined not to be constrained by anybody's expectations including the expectations of his own fans, you know? And yeah. so it wasn't what they were expecting. And so maybe those with more imagination liked it, and some of them didn't. He kind of didn't care, it seemed like. And yeah. just, I mean, he knew what he was doing. Absolutely. 
Once upon a time you dressed so fine Threw the bumps of dime in your prime Then you People call, say beware doll You're bound to fall, you thought they were off I'm kidding you Okay, part three. Yes. Part three covers just one year, 1969, which also happens to be the year I was born. So I'm glad that whole section was devoted to that year. To that year. And I didn't yeah. even know it. I just sensed it, you know. That that was, <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, what immediately comes to mind when most people think of 1969, of course, is Woodstock. Right. So let's talk about that festival for a minute. There are a lot of other things going on during that year we can talk about too, but how did the festival shape the music scene? And do you think it represents a culmination of the cultural and musical shifts of the 1960s? Um, I do think it represents a kind of culmination. For one thing, there were so many of the really talented performers there at Woodstock and such a variety of them from Credence Clearwater to, I think Melanie was there, I believe. I mean, she was. There were so many people there under such unpleasant circumstances, given the weather. I mean, the rain and all of those kind of things. It was muddy. And, and yet it really was incredibly peaceful given the size of the crowd. And I think music had a lot to do with that. I mean, they were yeah. there for the peaceful purpose of listening to really great music by these really great artists. And, you know, there was all the sex and drugs and all of that as part of the scene as well. And one of the things that I sort of focused on, as you may remember, in writing about Woodstock was the final song that was played at Woodstock. Jimi Hendrix. Which was the Star Spangled Banner, Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. I think that was the last song he played. At least he was the last act and mm -hmm. he played that. And it was such a amazing, iconic rendition of that. And I loved Hendrix's quote on Dick Cavett when Dick Cavett uh, said something about what an unorthodox version it was. And Hendrix said, I didn't think it was unorthodox. I thought it was beautiful. <laughs> and he intended it to be beautiful. And yet to evoke the angst, the pain, as well as to be patriotic, I think. I mean, I think you can we can project onto it whatever we want to, but that's what I found myself projecting onto it as I was listening to it later and as I heard it played at the time. I mean, it seemed like here was a counterculture guy playing the national anthem, and then pretty soon he was dead yeah. from an overdose of drugs. So was Janis Joplin. In the case of those two artists, was the culmination of their lives, really, right there at that festival. But that was one of the things that Jimi Hendrix chose to to play. And who knows what what all he meant by it. Maybe some people do. I don't even remember all of that. I just preferred to let it say to me what it would say to me. Oh, yeah. Well, I think it's extra poignant when you think that he had to leave the United States to really become successful, yep. which was over in London. Yep. And then he came back from Monterey and then he took off here. So I, of course, don't know what was going through his head either, but I can imagine there were a lot of things yeah. while he was playing that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know what makes that festival of peace and love 
extra special and extra hopeful for me is that it came on the heels of the Manson murders. Yes. It was just days after that horrible event. Yes, that's absolutely right. So there was this massive display of peace and love after one of the most bloody and horrifying things that happened, which was somehow the Manson murders were almost like this little stark, horrible sideshow to the violence that was so much a part of life by then, too, with the war in Vietnam yeah. and, and all of that. And so Woodstock was a counterpoint to all of that in, in, a, in a profound way, I think. Well, and music was all wrapped up in the Manson murders. Yeah. Charles Manson wanted to be a musician, and, and the Beatles put out the White Album, and that was like the soundtrack for the Manson family. Right. Yeah. So again, in ways that were a misuse, maybe, of what the music was intended to be, Sure. there it was. Everybody, it seemed, who was a part of life and tuned in to the world during those days, tuned in in part through music. And, you know, in that same year, 1969, Johnny Cash becomes important once again. He has his own television show recorded live at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville. And he set out quite deliberately to bring together people from all parts of the music spectrum country, folk, rock and roll. Some people from early rock and roll, like the Everly Brothers. Dylan could play whatever he wanted on that show. It's one of the few times Dylan decided to go on TV. And so Cash was making his own kind of affirmation of peace by affirming that the things that we have in common go deeper than the things that divide us. I mean, that was right. consciously the idea in his, in his mind when he put that show together. And then we end 1969 in December with Altamont. Right. So all the good feelings that came after Woodstock. Then we have a counterpoint. We have Altamont. And that was supposed to have been Woodstock on the West Coast. That's right. That's not what it turned out to be. No, no. I mean, somebody is killed and the, the uh, decision to use the Hells Angels as, uh, as security, I mean... When there was every reason to know that that was a really bad idea, and I'm not even sure there are competing claims about who made that decision and how much the Rolling Stones really knew about it. And the Rolling Stones went there directly from having recorded some beautiful songs in Muscle Shoals. They did yeah. Wild Horses in Muscle Shoals, which is one of my favorite Stone songs. And then they went to Altamont, and surely they didn't intentionally become part of the violent counterpoint to uh, Woodstock, and yet there it was. And so, yeah. you know, it was a kind of a brutal ending to after all the other stuff that we've been talking about. Part three is called The Unfinished Story. What do you think is unfinished about the 60s? Well, I think that the two competing story arcs that were the large story arcs of the book 
hope on the one hand and its opposite on the other continue to play out in American life. And I think that we still see, uh, you know, that that played out in, in music as time went by, mm-hmm. too. You know, we've had some very topical music since the, uh, since the 60s. Sometimes these days, it, if you look at performers like Jason Aldean, it can be topical in a disturbing way. All those years, we had uh, these, you know, the incredible anthems of Bruce Springsteen, for example. Um, and he started his career in the 60s and was influenced by early 60s rock and rollers and uh, was close friends with people like John Fogarty and Jackson Brown, whose musical identities were also being shaped in that time and continued on. So I think musically, we hear echoes, but also. In our politics, in our social movements, we still are struggling with some of those same issues, with the rights of people of color, with, uh, with gay rights. The environment is, uh, is a huge issue for us now with climate change. All of those things are still topics that we wrestle with, and very often those themes thread their way, I think, through our music even now. Yep. Well, A Hard Rain was published in hardback in 2018, but it has recently come out in paperback. Right. Why did you choose to release the paperback edition at this particular time? I really didn't choose to release it at this <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I, uh, gotcha. I, I had wanted to, I had hoped for a paperback much sooner. And it was interesting, uh, A Hard Rain in, in hardback, I have to say, got a lot of attention. Oh, Yeah. I was able to travel around the country and talk about those issues and ideas to a lot of people. NPR took note of the book and so on and so forth. But we could not find a publisher that wanted to do a paperback edition. And finally, I'm happy to say the University of Georgia Press, which is a wonderful university press with a strong trade portfolio as well as academic books, they have put it out in... uh, in paperback. I just got it, you know, just a few days before we're taping this. I'm very pleased with the way it turned out. It's exactly like the hardback. I mean, no, no, changes. no changes. I corrected one small mistake in it that I had made. Other than that, it's the same book. I hope it'll have a new life maybe with college students and others who may have missed the book the first time around. I think The ideas in it are still relevant. And I also think the story of that time is just, it remains as powerful as ever. Absolutely. So, um, you know, it was an immense satisfaction to me to be able to tackle it and do the best I could to try to say what it it was like. Well, congratulations on all of the work that you did. This amazing book, fabulous book, and now it's out in paperback. Where can folks go to get it? You can get it on Amazon. You can get it directly from the University of Georgia Press. I always recommend that people go to their local independent bookstore. And if they don't already Mm -hmm. have it, ask them to order it, which they can easily do. The book is A Hard Rain, America in the 1960s. Go and get yours now. It's out in paperback. This was Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me, Fry. Thanks. I really appreciate it, Christy. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. Take care. Tell Wyatt hello. I will. Bye-bye. Bye.
There must be lights burning brighter somewhere. Got to be birds flying higher in a sky more blue. If I can dream of a better land where all my brothers walk hand in hand, tell me why. Oh, why? Oh, why can't my dream come true? Thanks for tuning in, Lit Listeners. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a rating and comment on Good Pods and Apple Podcasts. Links in the show notes. Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I really appreciate your support. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is Lit. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.